Our first, our first reading is from Psalm 119, and you'll find it on page 560 of your pew Bibles. And we're starting from verse 97 of this long psalm. Psalm 119 from verse 97. How I love your instruction. It's my meditation all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders, because I obey your precepts. I've kept my feet from every evil path to follow your word. I've not turned from your judgments, for you yourself have instructed me. How sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I have solemnly sworn to keep your righteous judgments. I'm severely afflicted. Lord, give me life through your word. Lord, please accept my willing offerings of praise and teach me your judgments. My life is constantly in danger, yet I do not forget your instruction. The wicked have set a trap for me, but I've not wandered from your precepts. I have your decrees as a heritage forever. Indeed, they are the joy of my heart. I'm resolved to obey your statutes to the very end. I hate those who are double-minded, but love your instruction. You're my shelter and my shield. I put my hope in your every word. Depart from me, you evil ones, so that I may obey my God's commands. Sustain me as you promised, and I will live. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Sustain me so that I can be safe and always be concerned about your statutes. You reject all who stray from, you, from your statutes, for their deceit is a lie. You remove all the wicked on earth as if they were dross. Therefore, I love your decrees. I tremble in awe of you. I fear your judgments. Tonight's second reading is from the first letter of Timothy, chapter 4, starting at verse 11, which is found on page 1092 in your church Bibles. 1 Timothy 4, starting at verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise your youth. Instead, you should be an example to the believers in, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for by doing this you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and with all propriety, the younger women as sisters. Support widows who are genuinely widows, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. The real widow, left all alone, has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also so they won't be blamed. But if anyone does not provide for his own, that is, his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow should be placed on the official support list unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband and is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enrol younger widows, for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry and will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. They are not only idle, but are also gossips and busybodies, saying things they shouldn't say. Therefore, I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has widows in her family, she should help them, and the church should not be burdened, so that it can help those who are genuinely widows. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, nice to see you. Uh, I'm not supposed to be here tonight, I'm supposed to be over at Lavender Bay, but Andy's supposed to be here, but Andy is vomiting, so I'm preaching tonight instead, so it's nice to be here. Um, Shall we pray? Let's pray for Andy, and let's pray for our time in the Word. Uh, Father God, thank you that we can trust you in all things, thank you that we can gather, uh, that your Word is sweeter than honey to our lips, and I pray that that might be true tonight as your word is preached, that you would feed us and nourish us, that we would love you and love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start with a quote from one of my favorite preachers from the UK. His name is David Jackman. He wrote this. The watching world is not hugely impressed by emotional hype and extremism, but it's attracted by ordinary people living ordinary lives who demonstrate extraordinary godliness seen in love. See what he's saying? He's saying that the world watches how we live. He's saying that our conduct really matters. He's saying it matters how we live as God's people. Uh, He's saying that the, the people don't just naturally walk through these doors into church because of the beautiful music or the beautiful building or the beautiful sermons. People actually spot you and your life and the way that you relate to each other as church. And they think, that person's different. What is it about them that makes them different? 
I want a bit of that. Of course, the reverse is true, isn't it? Uh, the watching world is not impressed by hype and extremism. And the watching world is repulsed by people who claim to be believers but live a godless life. The watching world is repulsed by people who claim to love Jesus, but they're no different from the rest of the world. You know, we make the gospel so unattractive by our godlessness. And you know the damage done by the church, by godlessness in God's church? I could list a truckload of Christians who find church very, very difficult because they've been scarred and damaged and wounded by leaders and members of church. I met with a a girl three weeks ago and she hasn't been in church for three years. Wasn't part of this church, part of another church. Hasn't been in church for three years. She still loves God, she still reads her Bible, she still prays. But she can't trust church because she's so deeply scarred and deeply wounded by God's church. We're going through the Royal Commission at the moment, aren't we? And exposing all this horrific behavior by so-called men and women of God. But let's be honest, it's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? That's just into sexual abuse. What about spiritual abuse, physical abuse, abusing with our words and our power abuse? It's not just leaders that hurt churches, it is members disrespect and gossip and neglect. We talk about carrying burdens, but there's no one there to carry a burden with you. And if we are hurt by godlessness in God's church, think about the witness to the world. We can preach about forgiveness, we can preach about grace, but if we're not living it, we're not modeling it. Sleaze cripples the church and mistrust cripples the church. I'm talking about God's church. Remember how Paul defined the church back in chapter 3? Chapter 3, verse 15, I have written so that you will know how people ought to act or conduct themselves in God's household, in God's family. That's the word. Because the church is a church of the living God, and we are supposed to be the, the pillar of truth and the foundation of truth. We're supposed to be holding up the truth and holding out the truth. We're supposed to be modeling to the world, verse 16, that Jesus was born and Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose and Jesus will return, we've been left with that amazing truth to proclaim to the watching world. And that's why your godliness really matters. Because souls are at stake. Let's focus on our leaders to begin with. Godliness in our leadership. I want to imagine for a moment that you've signed up to, to do the Kokoda track. It's been your lifelong ambition you finally got around to doing it. You've done your training. You've paid your money. It's orientation day. You gather, and there's 40 people. You're going to be divided into two teams of 20, and there are two leaders. And you get to choose who you're going to follow, who's going to lead you on this track. And the first man walks out, and you first think, gosh, he's a bit unfit, a bit overweight. and He's got a big Mac in his hand, and he's got, he's got, he's got a book on the Kokoda track. He's like, I've never done it myself. Uh, but they pay a good wage. I want to earn some money, and so I thought I'd put my hand up to lead this. It's going to be easy. I'd love to do it myself. I don't care about you guys, but as long as I finish it, I've achieved it, I'll be okay. Do you want to follow him? 
you want him to lead you? And the second man walks out and he looks healthy and he is healthy and he's walked the Kokoda track 50 times before and he tells stories about how there was this old lady who longed to do the Kokoda track so he walked alongside her and he carried her over the finish line. Don't you want that type of man to be your leader? He knows what he's talking about and he cares for the people. Well, chapter 4, verses 11 to 16 are kind of like a, a window into a, a personal conversation between Paul and Timothy, and we get to listen in to what he looks for in his leaders. It's like when I preach at a wedding, I, I preach to the couple themselves, but I know the rest of the church are listening. And Paul is teaching Timothy, knowing the rest of the church are listening. So what does Timothy want leaders to know? Verse 11, command and teach these things. Timothy, it's your job, it's your responsibility to, to command people about prayer and about order and about eldership and about training in godliness. Timothy, verse 12, don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. Now the word for youth there, if Timothy is not a 20-year-old trying to run a big church. He's lived with Paul for 15 years by now. He's probably in his late 30s, mid-40s, he's a young man in their eyes, and I find that very encouraging. Uh, the danger for a young man in church, though, is what? What's the danger of a young leader in the church? Pride is one of them. You know, if you're growing a big church and you're successful, it's very easy to become proud. Uh, bullying is another one, you know. Pull your weight, impose your opinion, don't listen to people. I, I love what Spurgeon said about young leaders. Listen to this. Beware of being one of those young ones who goes about with his theological revolver in his ecclesiastical trousers. <laughs> Firing off doctrine, but no pastoral care at all. So what's the wisdom for Timothy and anybody who's a leader? If you're a, a hive leader tonight, if you're a kids' church leader, if you are teaching the Bible to people, what, what does Paul and God want of us? Uh, firstly, be an example of godliness. You see that in verse 12? You might be young, but be an example. Set the example to all the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. He's saying, Timothy, be a role model to your church. When people look at you, people should say, I want to be like him. He's a godly man. He's a godly, she's a godly woman. This is not hero worship, it's an Ordinary man living in an ordinary life demonstrating extraordinary godliness seen in love. Timothy, watch your speech, he says in verse 12. When you speak, when you open your mouth, make sure your words are not crude and not smutty and not slanderous and not harsh and not brash and not bitter. Be an example of words which are kind and full of compassion and full of love and full of truth. What does James say? Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Uh, Timothy, be an example of godly conduct, verse 12. Now, I found that your actions speak a lot louder than your words. You know that, don't you? You can say all the right things, but if you don't live it out. Timothy says, be a standout. Be exemplary in the way you live your life, in your home, in your office, in church even when you're driving your car, and I find that very difficult. 
to be patient in Sydney traffic. Uh, Timothy, be an example in love, he says. In your agape love, it's that Christ-like love, it's the, the selfless love, it's the sacrificial love, it's the way that you love the stranger and you love the neighbor and you love the person who's hurt you and you love all people. Timothy, be an example in faith, he says. Make sure when people look at you, say, there's a man who trusts God, who depends on God, who has a deep faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy, be an example in purity, he says. Be a man of unquestionable morality, unquestionable character. So the expectations of leadership is high. Your leaders should be setting an example in godliness. The choices we make, the way that we handle life, our speech, our conduct, our love, our faith, our purity. And I've been blessed with extraordinary role models of godly leaders. From the day I became a believer, I think of David in Oxford, I think of Vaughan in Oxford, I think of Alistair in London, I think of Wally in New Zealand. Godly leaders, godly men. You know, as a Christian, I didn't learn generosity through listening to sermons. I actually learned it from watching people and watching their life. I didn't just learn how to have the hard conversations with people by listening to sermon tapes and podcasts. I, I, I learned it from watching these men and women who were godly at doing that. When I was ordained 15 years ago, someone said to me, oh, Paul, you do realize that your life is going to be like a, a goldfish bowl. As though that was a bad thing. As though I should have a secret life that no one could see into. Don't you want your leaders to have a goldfish bowl kind of life where you can look at their life and say, I want to be like that. There's a godly man. There's a godly woman. I've said it before. That there's actually five Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, there's Luke, there's John. What's the fifth one? Your life. And most people don't bother to read the first four, but they look at the fifth. It matters how we live. Be an example of godliness. What else do you want from your leaders? You want them to instruct you in godliness, don't you? That's what you've been set aside for, to to teach and to preach and to instruct you. Uh, Not just to cuddle you, but to help you to become more like Jesus. How's Timothy to do that? Verse 13, until I come, give your attention to public reading, to exhortation and to teaching. That's a great job, this Christian. He says, Timothy, make sure that the, the, the Scriptures are read publicly. Make sure that people sit under this, the Scriptures, the Word of God. As a leader, one of the biggest comforts, it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, this is your authority. The inspired Word of God, the infallible Word of God, the inerrant Word of God. You know, when Paul wrote this, most people didn't have a Bible. I think sometimes we as leaders assume that because you've got a Bible, you're reading the Bible. Maybe that's a wrong assumption. But when you gather, make sure the scriptures are read, make sure that the voice of God is heard. And the high point of a service is what's just happened when Ben and Stephen read the scriptures. That was God speaking to you. Please don't go to a church where the scriptures are never read. And don't go to a church where the, the, uh, the leader just gives a motivational speech, but there's no scriptures in it. Very early on in the church, there was a pattern of two public readings, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's a quote from Justin Martyr, the first century. 
on the day called Sunday. All who live in cities or in countries in the country gather together in one place and the memories of the apostles, that's the New Testament, and the writings of the prophets, Old Testament, are read. The scriptures are read. Listen to this next line, as long as time permits. And so Christians would just flock to one place and they would sit and they would listen to the scriptures being read. We get bored after two minutes, don't we? But when the word of God is just read publicly, God speaks. And the job of the pastor is to teach you, to exhort you. See that word in verse 13, the the exhortation. It's a beautiful word. It just means the, the pleading. It means the urging. Come on, church. Sort out your godliness. Come on, church. Let's do this together. Come on, church. Let's live for Jesus. Let's love like Jesus. See, it's not just a lecture or like writing a book. You're actually that passionate plea. You're exhorting people to live different lives. Exhortation is actually really quite hard because we're all different, aren't we? We're in different battles, different seasons. Some of you here are hurting. Some of you are rejoicing. Some of you are suffering. Some of you are delighting. Some of you are really struggling in your faith and disappointed and disillusioned. And some of them are in a wonderful place. But we all need the exhortation to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. The other job of the leader is to teach in verse 13. The word there means that you expand the scriptures, you unpack the Bible. You tell people what the Bible says and what the Bible means, and that's actually quite hard work. The good teacher, the good leader, spends so hard unpacking the scriptures and so hard packaging the sermon, it's so clear for people. Again, David Jackman once said at a conference I was at, make sure that you work so hard in your study and you spend hours on the text and you spend hours preparing so when you stand up to teach others and as you preach, people are sitting there thinking, oh, well, that's obvious. Oh, well, that was obvious and gosh, that's really simple and, and they wonder why you spent so long preparing. It takes a lot of hard work to teach well. Of course, not everyone can teach and not everyone should teach. Lots of people think they can do it. But according to verse 14, there's a gift. He says to Timothy, you've got the gift. Don't neglect the gift. The gift of teaching and exhortation. It was given to you through a prophecy. So someone identified this gift and, uh, and called them out and said, Timothy, you've got a gift of teaching. I see it in you. You're going to be a leader. And it was confirmed by laying on of hands. Other people said, yes, Timothy, we're setting you apart to teach and to exhort and to encourage other people to be godly. So Timothy, practice these things. Be committed to them. Develop your gifts. And then he says down in verse 16, Timothy, pay close attention to your own life and to your teaching. I'll tell you a danger of being a leader in God's church. You become professional. You're very good at teaching other people. You're very good at telling other people how to live. But you neglect your own soul. Every time you open the Bible, you're kind of preparing a sermon for somebody else to hear. Make sure your leaders are nourishing their own souls and their own life and their own doctrine. If you, if you pray for me or pray for Dan or pray for Simon, pray that for us. 
that our own souls will be fed through the, the scriptures, that we won't just be professional teachers. I was rebuked a few years ago by somebody. And I, I'd said something like, oh, I'm going to practice my sermon. I said, practice your sermon? It's not a performance, Paul. Go and pray through your sermon. And the difference of praying through a sermon is when you pray through it, you're applying it to your own life first. Because the Word of God has to do its deep work in you as a, as a teacher before you can teach it to somebody else. And you want leaders who are progressing and persevering in their godliness, don't you? See that in verse 15? Practice these things, be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. People will look at your life and go, well, he's changing. He's being transformed by the Spirit of God to become more like Jesus. He's more patient. He's more compassionate. He's kinder. He is gentler. He is more godly. He's more willing to say the hard things. Persevering in verse 16. It's hard work. I think we should all get a sign on our head saying we're a work in progress. Because I am and you are. It's a bit like um, you know, training for a marathon. About you know, four months out from a marathon, you should start your training. If you want to do a marathon, start now, four months out. And the first week you get out there, you think, I, I could never do it. I could run 5K and I'm out of breath. And then the second week you can run 6K and the third week 8K. And 10 weeks in you can run 30K. Because you put in the hard work, you put in the hard labor, and you're being transformed. You're making progress in your fitness. The same in your godliness. You put in the hard yards, you do the hard training, and guess what? You get better at it. It takes hard work to grow in godliness, doesn't it? And you know what happens when you bump into somebody you haven't seen for five months and you've been training for a marathon for five months? They look at you and they go, wow, you're different. You look different. You're fitter. You, you seem so different. You go, yeah, I've just spent the last four months slogging my guts out, putting in the hard yards, and I am different. It's the same in your godliness. People should notice. You put in the hard yards, and the Spirit works in you, and it makes a difference. One of my heroes of the faith was uh, John Stott, and he died a couple of years ago. And he talked about he was a work in progress the day he died. One of the most godly men that I knew. But he never gave up becoming more and more like Jesus. Why does all this matter? We'll look at verse 16. By doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's not talking about... Uh, grace there. He's not undermining the gospel of grace. He's basically saying you can work out your salvation. You can become more like Jesus and you can lead other people into godliness or you can lead people into godlessness. See, leadership matters. So please pray for our leaders of this church. You want godly leaders and you want a godly family, don't you? According to chapter 3, verse 15, verse 15 the, the church is a household, the church is a family. Let's go back to the Kokoda track. You picked, you picked your leader. Who do you want to walk with? Who do you want to do this track with? I'll give you two choices. Uh, there's an 18-year-old, young, arrogant, proud man who sings very loudly, who thinks he knows it all, who shouts at you, who condemns you, and you think... I don't do life with that person. 
Or there's a 35-year-old woman who is humble and gentle and kind, and she says, if you get stuck, I'll help you, and if I get stuck, you can help me. Let's do this together, shall we? Who do you want to do life with? Who do you want to do church with? Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and with all propriety, the younger women as sisters. What's the picture he's painting there? Fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. It's a family, isn't it? And we are family. If you've come to Christ, if you believe in Jesus, you're part of a family. And Paul is now saying, make sure you act as a family. You ever seen those families where you think, I want my family to be like that? I think of a family in the UK and they've got four kids. They've got three sons who are now in their 20s. They've got a daughter who's now 18. Beautiful Christian family. I think, I want my family to be like that. Why? Because the three sons still hang out with their dad all the time. And they love the dad and they respect their dad and they listen to their dad and they seek his wisdom on things. And they're quite protective of their mother. They cherish their mother. And you should see the way that these three sons actually care for their younger sister with respect and propriety. That's church, isn't it? Verse 1, do not rebuke an older man. So if, you, if you're talking to an older man in church, please don't be arrogant enough to harshly and severely rebuke him. Oh, you might exhort him, you might need to correct him, but do that with gentleness and respect like you're talking to a father. Verse 2, if you're talking to an older woman in church, how do you relate to them? As mother? Listen to them, learn from them, value their wisdom. You know, when I read about older men and older women, it makes me really quite sad about the way that our society respects the older generation. You know, in other countries, in Asia and Africa, they've got this kind of inbuilt respect for their elders, the way they talk about them, the way they talk to them. But here in Australia, we're all kind of buddies, we're all mates, and it's all about the youth and the next generation and the energy, and, and we treat the older generation with kind of disdain or dishonor. Not in church. It's funny, I, with our boys, we're trying to teach our boys how to respect their elders, and, and one way we've, we've tried to do it is trying to encourage them to, to call the older people Mr. and Mrs. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Houston, or Mr. and Mrs. Peacock. And what we find time and time and time again is that the older generation is saying, oh no, no, call me Betty, or call me Sam, or call me whatever. And like, we want our kids to, to learn respect. Can I say, if, if, you're, if you're in a hive group, and you've got older men and older women in your high group, can you just sit at their feet and just drink their wisdom? <laughs> Please don't be arrogant enough to think that you know better than them. They've done life. They've lived life. They've been Christians, men, for, for a lot longer than you have. Please respect them. And if you are an older person here, can I urge you and plead with you, just a delight in sort of teaching and training and discipling the younger generation. 
But you've probably gone through stuff in life that we are yet to go through. You've walked with Jesus through the really dark times. Share that with people. Act as a father. Act as a mother. The younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters, with all propriety, no, no hint of immorality, no hint of sexuality, just those healthy, platonic, beautiful, sibling kind of, kind of relationships. So church, can we relate well? Can we do that, please? Older, younger. And church, can we care well? Will you care for those in need? See what Paul says down in verse 3? Support widows who are generally widows. He kind of bookends that in verse 16 with, if any believing woman has widows in her family, she should help them, and the church should not be burdened so it can help those who are really widows. He's saying there that there are people in our church, people in our midst who are in real need. And in this particular case, they were widows. They could be refugees, they could be orphans, they could be people who had deep personal needs and they are all alone. And he's saying here the church has a responsibility to be different from our world. So how does the world treat the marginalized? How does the world treat the needy? How does the world treat the aged? Stick them in a home somewhere and let somebody else care for them. And the Bible says if we're church, if we're family, we have a responsibility to care for those people in real need. Do you know your Bibles? God is the father to who? The fatherless. The defender of who? The widows. That's Psalm 68, verse 5. Exodus 22, he says, don't take advantage of those who are in need. Remember Jesus, where there was that the widow who was giving her last mite and she was commended and the widow who almost sort of nagged and persistently prayed and she's commended. And the early church, they, they had to set up uh, or set aside seven gifted leaders to oversee the daily distribution to the, to the widows. They cared for those in need. James chapter 1, verse 27. Do you know that verse? What's the religion that, that pleases God? Came for the orphan and the widows. It's throughout the whole of Scripture, the marginalized, the needy, the oppressed. We have a responsibility as God's family, God's church, to display care in action. I don't just mean uh, care in words. I don't just mean care in prayer. I mean care in actions. That you financially, that you emotionally, that you physically care for them and meet their needs. Adversely support them, honour them if they are really widows. I mean, church history is littered with examples of people who have done this. Go and read about George Muller. You ever heard of that guy? He cared for 10,000 orphans. He established 117 schools and educated 120,000 people. Listen to this. He was accused of individually raising the poor above their natural station in life. He made a difference. The Samaritans were set up by Christians. Dr. Bernardo set up by Christians. Caring for those in need. That's what these verses are about. The marginalized, the oppressed, the vulnerable, the needy in our church. 
as I read verses 3 to 16, I'm challenged in numbers of ways. I'm challenged by verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, they must learn to practice godliness towards their own family first and to repay their parents for this pleases God. Have you ever thought about that as being a way that you show godliness, the way that you care for your aged parents, the way that you care for your aged grandparents? You don't just let other people do it, you have a responsibility to do it for your own family. Well, verse 8 is kind of a ouch verse, isn't it? If anyone doesn't provide for his own family, that is his own household, he's denied the faith, is worse than unbeliever. He's saying, you can't claim to live for Jesus, but then neglect your own family in need. But of course, not everyone has a biological family. There are, verse 5, there are real widows who have nobody. There are real people in our church who have nobody. This person in verse 5 has put her hope in God. She's a believer. She's a prayerful believer. She's not a self-indulgent believer like the one in verse 6. This is a godly woman who's relying on God. She's all alone, and the church has a responsibility to care for her. According to verse 9, there's a, a list of widows. You didn't make the cut if you were under 60. You didn't make the cut if you hadn't been faithful to your husband. You didn't make the cut if you hadn't done good works. Verse 11, don't enroll younger widows for, I think what he's saying there is that they're tempted to turn away from Jesus by, by marrying, I think marrying an unbeliever, and they are therefore living a godless life, he says. Verse 13, they're tempted to be idle and busybodies and gossips. They walk away from Jesus. But all he's saying here really is that the church has a responsibility to care for those people who are really in need. Let's get real, shall we? How are we doing at this? How are we doing at caring for the marginalized and the vulnerable and the needy in our church? I think we're actually doing reasonably okay at caring for the marginalized and the needy in our society. Because that's kind of easy, isn't it? Have a winter appeal, you can just sort of chuck a few clothes and a few toiletries and a bit of money at people. Maybe come to a community lunch and make yourself feel good, pat yourself on the back because you sat next to somebody who's needy. Wander down to Greenway and just care people. That's actually quite easy to do, isn't it? But what about people in our midst? What about people who sit in these chairs every single Sunday? And they are marginalized and they're in need. They're lonely and they've got nobody to talk to. They are financially strapped. They don't know where the next cent's going to come from. And we sit here every single week and we praise God together, but we neglect them. And it's not just my job to care for them or the church and the institution's job to care for them. Who's called to care for them? We are, us, together, because we are family. If there are people here tonight and you are in need, please, 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 I hope we can help you. Of course, we can't help if we don't know you're in need, can we? Because what else do families do? They're vulnerable, they're real with each other. You know, when a family works well, it's beautiful, isn't it? We relate well, older and younger, we care for those in need. 
Now that makes the gospel really attractive, doesn't it? Now do you see why godliness matters? Let me say, I'm really sorry for, for times when I haven't modelled uh, speech and conduct and faith and purity. I've stuffed up like you have. I ask you for forgiveness for that. And I know that I've stuffed up in terms of caring for people in need, as you have as well. But we're all a, a work in progress. So please pray for our church that we would be godly. We'd be godly as leaders and godly as members. Because the world isn't impressed by hype and extremism and music and preaching. What's the word impressed by? Ordinary people like you and me, living ordinary lives, demonstrating extraordinary godliness, <laughs> seen in love. Let me pray. I'll give you time by yourself just to confess any failings to God for the way that you haven't loved well or cared well or strived for godliness in your own life. Lord God, thank you for your forgiveness and thank you for your transforming spirit who's at work in each one of us. Please help us to grow in our godliness, to love well, to care well. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.